Flow Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicware on Instagram at Picnicware, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicware.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things, always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. 
To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that is bringing in the new year with a really brutal sinus infection. No, I'm not just trying out a new sexier vibe for the pod. (laughs) This is just kind of where my voice is right now. I'm doing all of the things to get better. Steam, compresses, drinking lots of liquids, sinus massages. I'm doing it all because for one, my head really hurts and I would like it to stop. And two, I would really like to get my voice back to its normal loveliness for all of us podcasting. In light of my condition, which the word condition makes it sound far more serious than it is, this episode will be a little different. Uh, You'll be hearing a lot less solo talking from me, but don't worry. You'll get to hear plenty of my voice in the interviews. You know, while I was editing this week's episode of The Department, I was like, oh, I sound so stuffy and hoarse and just not like my usual cheery self. And I just can't do another episode like that. So I'm taking it a little easy for this episode, which in this case means instead of an 11 page script, I'm going to keep it around five. I know really slacking over here. (laughs) It's practically a vacation. (laughs) I know I could have pushed this episode out, but I just really wanted to get it to you because there's so much good stuff in it. And We have so much awesome content coming in January. I'm so excited about it. And I think this is just like a great way to start 2021 and get us all excited, right? This episode was originally also going to include an amazing letter from listener Helen about the forced labor, aka slavery, of the Uyghur Muslims in China, along with an update from me on the companies involved with all this. But I'm saving that for Sunday when hopefully I'll be feeling a lot better. So what's happening today? Why couldn't I wait? Well, the main event is part one of my interview with Jessica Schreiber, CEO and founder of FabScrap. We've talked about FabScrap here before. Jenny of Late to the Party gets fabric for her jackets and collars from them. And this NYC-based organization takes fabric scraps and other unused materials and samples from designers and brands. They sort the items into various streams, some for sale in their own store and online, while others are shredded and or used for other industrial applications. And no one has a better view into the just day-to-day waste on the corporate level than Jessica. So I am so excited for you to hear our conversation. Today is part one of our conversation where we'll talk about corporate responsibility, specifically in the area of like waste and 
recycling and sustainability, all of those things. Uh, we'll also talk about the true story of returns. It's That one's not a happy one. And lots and lots of trash talk, but like literally trash talk. <laughs> I guess January is shaping up to be trash month here at Clothes Horse. And you know what? I'm not mad about it because really looking at trash gives us a clear view of our consumption and the consumption on a larger corporate level. We have plenty more trashy episodes coming this month. So if you love trash, you're in the right place. Also in this episode, a conversation with resale entrepreneur Estella of Estella's Plus Closet and a phone call from our friend Jillian. So see, there's all kinds of rad stuff in here. I couldn't sit on this. Normally, this is the time where I would thank all of the patrons, but I'm going to save that for Sunday's episode because I just know I'm going to feel better by then. If you're interested in supporting Close Horse via Patreon, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast, and I'll include that link in the show notes. And if you don't want to support the pod via Patreon, that's totally fine too. There are so many other ways you can show your support that are super impactful, like leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, sharing it with your friends, posting about it on social media, or you don't need to do any of those things. You can just keep listening because that's what it's really all about. <laughs> I do want to give a special shout out to Leslie Travis, who sent an extra special one-time donation via Venmo. And thanks to her generosity, I'm going to get to do something that I've been wanting to do for a long time that just I just didn't have the extra cash for. I'll be able to buy the URL for the new Clothes Horse blog. And this is something I've been wanting. Finally get an official, not free from Gmail, Clothes Horse email address. So now, hopefully, my emails will stop going to everyone's spam folder because this is like the bane of my existence and it's one of the drawbacks of a free email account. So thank you so much for your generosity, Leslie. I will be thinking of you every time I send an email and someone responds because they got it. (laughs) Thank you. If Patreon isn't your thing and or you would rather make a one-time donation, please, you can Venmo me directly at crystal underscore visions. If you have more questions about that, just reach out. You could also make your donation via PayPal, but I can't remember my PayPal username right now. Once again, just reach out if you have questions about that. All right. Do you hear that totally imaginary sound? It's our friend Jillian calling the Clothes Horse hotline. Hi, Amanda. Happy New Year, Jillian. I am listening today to your episode number 40, and I was really struck by Sarah's message on the Close Horse Hotline um, that, um, I don't know, just kind of like lit up part of my brain, and um, I wanted to share a little bit about some things that I've been contemplating, especially towards the end of the year, because in a year where the Hermit was my number one tarot card and boyfriend, uh, we were really like deep in it towards the end of the year. So I had a lot of time to reflect and something that kept coming up for me, um, as I've been looking into studying magic, um, like ceremonial magic and ritual magic is just how much of it really gets down into the nitty gritty of like what the word you always use, which I really, really like is granular of habit. And I think especially in 2020, because so many of us have been, you know, living in our very own private echo chambers, there 
is this really potent opportunity for things like what Sarah was talking about, where when you actually um, examine your habits and you have that distance from just the um, the frenetic energy of the kinds of lives that we all live, just how much of an opportunity that is to kind of like to to regain our own personal power from capitalism and patriarchy and all of these isms and archies that have essentially colonized our imaginations, colonized our dreams, colonized our ambitions. And that like one of the most powerful things you can do against that and for yourself and for your community and for the kind of future that we're going to hope to build is to examine your habits and to examine the ways that incrementally, bit by bit, you construct your life, which is a lot of what you do on the show. I could, I could ramble on and on about this, but I guess what um, I kind of want to close down by saying is it's not a question, and I think that's, that's part of the narrative that we've been fed and force-fed for so long of having these kind of really drastic, you know, kind of packing back through about faces or, um, you know, just like flipping something completely over. It's really um, about just having one thing, even if it's the smallest thing, and tending to it and caring for it and nurturing it. I do think um, that it's really exciting that Sarah is, is going on this sort of like micro purge which she's hoping will have this um, beneficial sort of counterpoint in like the micro savings that could come towards um, paying off debt or whatever. And just real quick in that, there's so many fun apps that I've been playing around with for what I've been terming kind of like ecosystem saving. There's one in particular called Capital with a Q where you can set it up to like save a dollar, save $5 for you every time you can't resist a guilty pleasure or it saves like your change. And it's sort of like, it begins to bloom and blossom in these sort of like lichens and crystals of like little amounts of money that start kind of to grow in that way. Um, and I, I think they're cool. And if anybody wants to try to just sort of like gradually create some illusion of savings, I, I recommend checking stuff like that out. Anyway. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. Talk a lot. Um, love from the cats and love to your cats. And I'm happy to hear again. Bye. I love Jillian's message. And I think it's a really great first hotline message of the year because it gives us some good marching orders for 2021. We can make so many changes this year. And sometimes the most successful and significant ones are made slowly but consistently. You know, it's that idea of progress, not perfection. I think culturally, this idea of like a full 180 and a laundry list of changes made all at once, that's what the expectation is as we start a new year. It's what a lot of the blogs and magazines and other media will tell you to do. Those never stick. And, and we know that. For that reason, it's not a surprise to me that only 8% of New Year's resolutions stick because they're just too big they're unachievable. They're not broken down into steps that kind of get you there. It's just like snap of the fingers. I totally changed my career path or all my behaviors. Just, just doesn't work that way that you can change that suddenly and that fast and have it stick. 
The most successful New Year's resolution that I ever made was just to make two changes each month that would make my life better. Because I had been in a pretty bad place during the previous year, just horrible relationship stuff. I was really unhappy at my job. I'd had a lot of I was just depressed, you know, and I would see myself doing dumb stuff to kind of cope with that that depression and disappointment, kind of like loneliness that I was happening. So I did small things every month. Like in the first month, I got a library card and started reading a lot more. That made me so happy. I signed up for a car sharing service so I could explore different parts of the city. That was what an upgrade to my life or even to be able to use a car to go to the grocery store when it was like pouring rain rather than try to suck it up and do it on my bike. These little things lifted my spirits, my mental health so much. In the next month, I signed up for a produce box subscription and I started cooking most of my meals, which helped a lot of my stomach issues. I felt a lot better. I was saving money. Next, I tackled the oil cleansing method for my face. And you know what? I'm still doing all of these things. Years later, I still wash my face with oil. I still get a produce box delivered. And I was, even before the pandemic, cooking most of my meals. And of course, I read all the time. That was the most and, well, probably only successful New Year's resolution I've ever had. (laughs) And so I'm, I'm kind of adopting that for myself this year too, you know, like looking every month for changes that I can make in terms of what I buy, what I don't buy, how I view my possessions, all of those things. I'm still kind of outlining it all through because I don't think that you have to have this all in place and definite on January 1st. But this year is a great year to think about reining in our consumption, making more conscious decisions. These can all happen in small steps if you sit down and sort of take the moment to break it into these little bite-sized pieces. Even when I was a manager, you know, back when I had a job, (laughs) and I, well, a job for a company and not a job for myself, which is the podcast, uh, I would actually sit down with the members of my team and sort of say like, okay, what is it that you want to, like, what's the top line goal that you want for this year? You want to learn this thing? You want to get promoted? What do you want to do? Okay, now let's sit down and break down all the little steps that will get you there. Let's put them on the calendar Let's be sure that we're constantly talking about them and holding one another accountable. And I think it's important, whether you're plotting out your next career move or making New Year's resolutions, to be honest with yourself about how many new habits or new information, new things you can learn at one time. Set out the goals for the whole year and hold yourself accountable. Get your friends and family involved. My year of two new things per month, I told a few friends so they could ask me, hey, Amanda, what are your two new things for April? And are you still doing the new stuff from January? And that helped keep me going and, you know, not like sort of trail off after the first few months of the year. Remember, it's all about progress, not perfection. If you have some great new, I hate using the term resolution, Let's come up with a better term. But if you have a new resolution for this year that you'd like to share, please call, email, or DM because I want to hear all about it and hear what you're up to so you can inspire us and we can help hold you accountable. This is a community, right? Okay. Next, we're going to listen to a conversation with Estella of Estella's Plus Closet, who is one of my new internet best friends. She's just so delightful. As you know, I've been talking to a lot of different people who are, you know, 
making money, whether it's like their full-time job or their side gig, selling secondhand clothes. And to me, this is a really important conversation to have and continue exploring and meeting new people who do it because even the big fast fashion retailers know at this point that secondhand clothing is this huge and for them threatening new industry that will change the way everyone shops. If you've been buying secondhand for a long time, you're like, what? What's the big deal? But I can assure you, we haven't reached that point where like everybody is converted to the joys and just magic of secondhand clothing. So I'm going to continue to explore this from time to time with different entrepreneurs who are building a business there. So if you sell secondhand, please reach out to me. I would love to talk to you about what you do, what you think about the future, how it's changed you, anything else you want to say. Estella sells secondhand clothing specifically in plus sizes, which is a major need. I mean, we talk about this a lot, that in many cases, secondhand clothing and being able to buy it can be a size privilege because it can be harder to find larger size secondhand clothing for a multitude of reasons, probably the most primary being that for decades, retailers have ignored larger customers, right? That's that's the main thing. They just weren't making a lot of clothing ever. So people are holding on to what they have. There is plenty of secondhand smaller size clothing all over the internet, as I say all the time, but very few people have focused solely on plus size. In so many ways, Estella is a pioneer in this area, and she has some really good advice for all of you. So listen up while she talks. She's awesome. So why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Okay, so my name is Estella Adair. Um, I um, I feel like I'm on a dating show. I'm 34, <laughs> and I no, I'm 34, and I am from Texas. Where in Texas? Um, I'm actually in Dallas. So oh, I, I, yeah, my husband and I, um, we were in Colorado. We're from Texas, but we lived in Colorado for a few years, and um, we had decided that we wanted to start a family. So we. Um, got pregnant, and then we were like, ooh, we actually want to go back to Texas, but cheaper cost of living. So, you know, we're, like, all about that uh, budget system. So we, we came back to Texas because the, the living is quite cheaper than it is in Colorado. You uh, sell secondhand clothing. You have a business. Yes. Oh, let's mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit. Awesome. I'm so excited to tell you about that. What I would you like to know? Well, okay, so- your business is called Estella's Closet, right? Mm-hmm. Estella's Plus Closet, yes. Estella's Plus Closet. And so you do focus on larger size clothing. Like, what do you kind of use as, like, your guideline in terms of sizes? So, um, essentially, I do pretty much, like, extra large and up, um, you know. So it can kind of vary, uh, especially because I do a lot of vintage clothing as well, what I can find for larger bodies. Um, and I really prefer measuring clothes instead of using the labels because, as we all know, sizing labels vary. <laughs> like, I could I could wear, like, a 1X at one store, and then the next store it's, like, a 6X. And I'm like, I'm really confused here. Um, but also I noticed that it um, 
it kind of triggers something in people, you know, about sizing, and that's kind of a whole other topic, but it really does cause issues for a lot of people. Um, you know, some people don't even know, like, am I extra large or 3X or anything like that. They just know their measurements. So um, that's what I do. I measure, I do, like, what's called a flat lay measurement, and I measure, you know, um, pit to pit, which would be, if you double that, that's going to be your breast and your breast size, your bust size, I mean, <laughs> um, or your breast size, too, you know. And then I do, like, you know, your your waist and your hips and, you know, all that. So basically I'm, I mostly focus on measurement, which is also, let me just throw this in there, my least favorite part of the job. Oh, um, <laughs> It just takes so much time. That's so, um, yeah. So that's, yeah. What, that's what I do. Um, I started in, I think it was July, um, and I've been, you know, here we are going into January, and I, it actually kind of started, I mean, you didn't ask me this question, but I'll just go ahead and tell you. Um, it started as kind of like, I, my husband was like, babe, you have way too many clothes. And I, well, and the thing is, is it wasn't even like clothes I was wearing. Um, it was stuff that I bought secondhand that, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, oh, I like this. I'm going to get it. And then I may not have ever wore it or I wore the crap out of it and had it for like eight years, you know. And he was like, babe, I think you just need to clean out your closet. And I was like, okay. So I was on Instagram, and I, like, posted a story, and I asked people, I was like, if I had an Instagram to sell some of my clothes, would any of you be interested? And I was, like, surprised with how many people were like, yes, please do it. And I kind of thought, I was like, is this silly of me, you know, to do this on Instagram? But then I was like, well, this is a, you know, I mean, I'll charge super cheap prices because I'm not wearing it and somebody else can get use out of it. So I just did that. And honestly, everything, I I had like, I think it was like 18 items. And I embarrassingly, like, just threw a picture up on, like, it wasn't anything curated. That's for dang sure. It was just like... (laughs) Here's a dress that you can hardly see, but it's on, and it's on a hanger. And here's a picture of me wearing it. And here's the size, and here's how much I want for it. And my prices were like super. I mean, like super cheap. It was like six dollars for this really cute dress that I don't even know how much I paid for it and where I got it. And um, anyways, and everything sold like literally pretty much within like 48 hours. And I could not believe it, and I was like, dang, I don't have any more clothes, but now I have some money, which was so nice because I, um, I'm i a stay-at-home mom and a full-time student, and um, we, just because of the things that happened in our, our childhood, um, we've had, we have some traumatic um, things that have happened. We've decided that we don't want anyone to, you know, watch our son except for me. Um, and so with that being said, you know, my husband is a social worker. He does not make a lot of money, <laughs> like plain and yeah. simple. He just doesn't. And he loves his job. So to me, that's like what matters most. Um, but so we were, you know, with that, I was like, well, look, I just made like a little chunk of change. It's not much, but it's something. And so I pulled my, um, the followers I had on there, like, I think I had, like, 400 followers, and that's a lot because I had done this, like, I don't know, I think it's, like, 2013, but it was just to, like, local people where I lived. And, uh, anyways, so, sorry, I, I talk so much. I'm a chatty Kathy. No, I love it. Um, I was, mesmerized listening to that. <laughs> so, I basically polled everybody and was, like, hey, if I bought, if I, like, went thrifting 
hey, would you be interested in me reselling? And I could not believe how many people said yes. And then the responses were, yes, please do. I hate thrifting, but I need clothes because it's hard for me to find stuff because I'm plus size. Mm-hmm. And I I got that, like, nonstop. And honestly, that was, like, my whole life. I didn't even start caring about, like, I, I don't think I really wore a dress consistently until I was 21. Like, because I was so embarrassed of my size and I was insecure. And I wore, like, jeans and hoodies, you know. Um, didn't think that big girls could be in the fashion because it, we never saw that, right? Like, wow. growing and up, it was... Like, Hearing that and and also knowing that makes me so mad. You know, fashion is so fun. Like getting dressed up is. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yes, I love it, and I I feel like our personalities can come out in our clothes. You know, and all these people are like, "Yes, do it. I love your style." And I was like, "Wait, I have style? Like what? You think (laughs) I have style? Okay." So then I started it, and that's my life story of how I started a Stella's Plus Closet. Uh, You know, but I. I love it. It's so fun. So do you still sell primarily on Instagram or do you use Poshmark or anything like that? So I actually am launching a website. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, girl, yes, I'm turning it into an LLC. Um, wow, because it I'm has, so excited yeah. for you. That's amazing. Thank you. I know it's really incredible. I have been very fortunate um, during this pandemic to really like to bring in an income for my family, um, to start a business that has been successful. Um, and I am actually launching a website next month, I believe. Um, I'm still working or waiting for my branding to be finished. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm currently still just using Instagram at the moment. Um, I didn't want Poshmark or all those other places to get a percentage of my money because, you know, I was like, well, I, you know, if I'm doing the work, like, they don't need my money. Like, I don't need to pay them. I'm sure you see all the stuff on Instagram, too. It's like, there are tons of these, like, big-time Poshmarkers mm-hmm. who, who, like, supposedly are killing it. And I can't, they must work 24 hours a day. <laughs> well, and I've also wondered, too, I'm like, okay, so you're killing it, but could you imagine how you'd be, like, crushing it if, oh. like, you were, you launched your own website and had an LLC and you just did it yourself, like, yeah, it's For work, but sure. I feel like it'd be way better. So, oh, yeah, yeah, that's what we're doing. I'm really excited just because I, you know, I love social media, but it also can be very, like, time-consuming, especially if you're selling online, because if you have these sales, you need to be, like, by your phone. So when people, like, claim an item, you, I need to, like, be able to respond immediately. And that has, like, kind of taken away time from my my family time. And I, my husband and I were talking, and I just, I just really felt like the best route for me is to do a website. I hope people will follow me there. Um, but then there's ways to tie the website in with your Instagram. So, you know, that's, That'll be something I'll do as well. But, yeah, we're, I'm really excited about that. There's still sort of a stigma against thrifting. There is. Right? Which is so – it's so interesting to me because – well, let me backtrack, though, because when I was a kid or a teenager, I remember my mom trying to take me um, to a thrift store, and we were really poor. Like, we we really were. My mom was, like, a single mom of three. She's a waitress. She worked her, her tail off. 
and to take care of us and to provide for us. And I remember her wanting to take me to a thrift store, and I was, like, offended. Like, I was like, only poor people go to thrift stores, well, right, which is really funny. Yeah. Do what? Yeah. That's like yeah. what people thought when we were kids, right? Like, yeah. I would wear thrift store clothes, too. Although, like, it was interesting. Like, my grandma and my mom did not want to go to the thrift store because they also thought it was for poor people, even though, guess what? We were poor people. <laughs> but they had no problem buying clothes at yard sales. And I'm like, it's Which is funny thing, right? Exactly. But I would wear, like, yard sale clothes to, to school, and people would make fun of me. And I, mm. I wish I had the same – I mean, of course, it would be super weird to – have a grown woman's brain in a, like, 10-year-old's body. But I wish I could be like, hey, guess what? I am poor, motherfucker. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. <laughs> well, and, like, to be at a place in your life where it's like, um, okay, I'm just going to do me. I don't care what Yeah, exactly. I, dude, okay, Doc Martens, when I was in um, seventh grade, was were super popular. Well, we were, like, poor. Um, and I remember telling my mom I had to have, put Doc Martens like over and over and over I was like in order to fit in I have to have Doc Martens because not only was I poor I was overweight um and I had no sense of style or fashion or anything but really who does in seventh grade but anyway no one does uh, right right it was just about trying to fit in right yes yes and I basically like made my mom buy me Doc Martens um that she really didn't need to be buying me but she just did it because she was trying to like buy my love or take care of me, give me what I want, whatever. Um, You know, and then now I look back at that and I just remember, and I mean, granted, I just got some for Christmas. I haven't owned Doc Martens since I was like in eighth grade. Um, But I remember that being such a big thing about like, well, if I can't fit into their clothes, I can fit into their shoes. So let me just like wear these shoes and then maybe I'll be accepted. Sorry, we're like going all over the place with this conversation. Oh, no, it's okay. This it. happens every single time I talk to someone. It's always like <laughs> I have to edit it down. It's like a challenge. It's okay. <laughs> You're like, how do I figure this out? How do I weave it all together? How do I make it make sense? Yes. You are strictly thrifting, right? Or yes. You, uh, you know how some people buy those like pallets of returns and stuff like that. You don't do that. Oh no. Mm-mm. Nope. No, I do my everything that I buy is a hundred percent like I posted it. Um, I actually live super close to um some thrift stores, so it's uh, pretty convenient for me. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, and I it's funny because my husband and I, my husband works right next door to a thrift store, and we were like, oh, both of our jobs are like a few miles from our house. Like that's nice. So. Um, but yeah, I do that. Um, I honestly try to stay away from fast fashion, um, because of the, the quality of, uh, yeah. my son obviously wants to talk, sorry. <laughs> um, because of the quality, um, and just like, even though the money is not, um, my heart, mommy needs to speak, okay? Thank you. <laughs> um, just because the, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, he, he started this new thing when I'm talking, he will just be like, ah. Um, anyways, I try to stay, I try to stay away from fast fashion because the quality is just, it's so poor. It's like, I mean, it really is. Now, occasionally I will put something in my shop and it always surprises me because it goes immediately. Um, to the people who buy from me. And I think it's because people are used to, fast fashion it's also modern so maybe they're you know they, mm-hmm. they like the modern look 
Um, but I think people are comfortable with fast fashion because they know it. You know what I mean? Um, and so what I'm really hoping to do through this is to open people's minds to like, hey, guess what about vintage clothing? Like even, at, you know, you know, 90s is considered vintage, which cracks me up. But, hey, I'll take it. Um, you know, <laughs> it's just, Every time yes, I think about it, I get a headache. <laughs> yeah, it feels like yesterday to me, but whatever. Yeah. I, know, but I just feel like, um, you know, with vintage, it's like a lot of the times, like 90% of the time, their quality is way better, you know, than what we get now. And they use better materials. Like there's so much that goes into it um, that I believe is better. So it's kind of hope that I can just <clears throat> encourage people in that direction um, and secondhand. And also it's like, I'm like, I feel kind of, and I, I think I messaged you about how sometimes I, or in the very beginning, I felt really bad for um, charging people more than what I paid for an item. Mm-hmm. And my husband was like, are you kidding? Like, you go and you hunt and you spend hours finding, like, these things that are, like, good quality and things that are fun and wearable and then you spend time taking photos and cleaning and measuring. And he was like, do not feel bad like you're offering a service. And no so, way. Yeah. I mean, you're doing so much work. And like I said, oh. lots of people don't want to go thrifting. Yes. And that's where it's really been such a gift. So now I don't, I don't feel bad about pricing. I do still try to be, uh, I want to be affordable for people, um, you know, because I don't want to rip people off. That's not my goal. My goal is to bring an income in for my family and make um, plus-size clothes accessible for people, especially because of this pandemic. Many people aren't going shopping, and they're mm-hmm. wanting to stay home, so it's easier um, for me to have an online business and for them to shop online. Right. No, I think, I mean, you're providing such an incredible service. You know, and I, yeah, uh, I'm excited that you're going to have a website because then you can like, thank put you more stuff, you know, and yes, there's more people. Yeah, some people are kind of intimidated by the like buying stuff off of Instagram thing. Like, I'm yeah, do it because I've been seeing it for years. But for mm-hmm. other people who are newer to like the secondhand world, it's like, wait, is this is this a scam? You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I do want to touch on something that you said a minute ago because I've been thinking about it. You know how you said that there's such a need for this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always been a need. I, I think that now people are just becoming more comfortable with their bodies and their it's like this body acceptance movement thing um, that's happening. And, you know, like there is such a need for, for plus-size clothing retailers. Um, and I remember being a little kid and like only being able to go to Lane Bryant like and oh, it was and so you're like a kid and it's like yes woman clothes like lady yes. clothes oh yes I and I was so ashamed my friends would be like where did you get that and I'd be like oh I don't know I would lie I was so embarrassed you know I was, I was so mortified but now it's like thankfully people are are confident in saying like yeah I I'm plus size, like, yeah, I have a larger body, or, you know, some people are like, yeah, I have that, you know, and I, and, and I just, I'm so thankful to be in a place, even though it's kind of sad because it's 2020, and we're, oh, no, it's 2021, um, <laughs> we should be like, we should have been here forever ago um, in this movement of, like, accepting our sizes and accepting who we are um, and who we've been designed and created to be, but I think I'm just 
really excited to help empower and encourage people. Like, like, like for me, I have always been a person that keeps smaller sizes in my closet thinking, cause I've yo-yoed up and down with my weight um, for years now. And I've kept those smaller sizes, but recently I just started cleaning them out because I don't want to hold on to hope that I'll be smaller. Um, even though like, Maybe a little later on in life, but right now I just want to be comfortable with who I am today. And so that's my hope to be able to empower people like, hey, be who you are right now in this moment. Don't wish for a different, you know, like you can be hopeful if you want to lose weight or hopeful if you want to be a different size, whatever, but like still love who you are today and wear things that like bring you joy and don't be afraid of what society says. I remember being told like, Oh, you're big, so you should always wear black. It'll make you look oh, thin. Or, I hate oh, that. You should, yes. Oh, my gosh. And then, oh, you should not wear patterns or stripes. They're going to look awful on you. Guess what, baby girl? I love bright colors. I love stripes. And I love crazy patterns. So that's pretty much what my shop is. It's like <laughs> uh, going against those those fashion rules that we've been told, you know. Uh, that's real things to go away. I hate that. I feel like they're dumb. you hit on so many things just now they're like so important to me like one is this idea that I feel like everyone regardless of what size they are are constantly being told that they could like do better and so they should keep or buy smaller clothes as like yeah. a goal and I I hate that so much I like yeah still see that on like tv shows and in movies and it's just like infuriating to me this idea of like a goal weight mm-hmm. goal size a goal body I like yeah you're great as you are right now and sit around worrying about this, how you're going to, things are going to be better down the road when you're this other size, then you're missing out on everything that happens right now. And that is such a tragedy. And I hate that idea of like dressing to be like flattering. Yes. It sounds like such a old timey word. Like, well, that's not flattering because I'm a person who goes around in like a, a moo-moo basically at all times. Girl, okay. Do you even know what I wear every day? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Literally. It's, every day. You know, and I feel beautiful and stylish and cool. I remember yes. I was dating this guy one time and it was it was like not a good relationship anyway. And he was like, well, I can't even tell if you like me because you're always just wearing all these like moo-moos and kimonos and you <laughs> were interested in me like sexually you would dress sexier and I'm like what uh, so sexy right now I do not yeah. you. <laughs> sorry this isn't gonna work like, yeah, totally. not <laughs> but it's so funny because my um my grandma will always wore house dresses and moo's um we're Mexican I'm not I've been told that that could be a Mexican thing as well I don't really know um, but I just grew up seeing her wear moo-moos with, like, flower prints and all this stuff. And my grandma was – she wasn't even overweight, like, when I was a child. She was before that. But, like, it's funny because I just – I don't know. It's ingrained in my head. So every time I'm thirsting, oh, my gosh, I go to the stinking nighty section first. And I'm like – Yes, every time. Never fails. And – I'm like, how did someone leave this behind? Oh, my gosh. How did someone not get this? Oh, my gosh. And then you never know. Like, you, it, it never fails that I will have, like, tin moo-moos or, like, house dresses or, you know, kimonos in my my um, cart. And my husband's like, are you going to buy all of those? And I'm like, yeah. And it looks like I'm not going to sell them because I want to keep them myself. So. <laughs> yeah. So I have, like, a plethora. And I feel like I keep on getting better and better with, like, my, you know, my – um 
my eye gets better and like the things that I find and it's funny because I feel like I'm just getting better and better with every house dresser or Moo and I'm like oh how am I going to top this one this one's incredible so girl I am a fan of Moo and house dresses for life yeah no me too it's, it's the best I and I feel sexy too so hey yeah yeah and I'm like comfortable <laughs> and I look cute and it's like you know, it's like a unique style because people don't dress yes. that way that commonly now. So, I mean, mm-hmm. my husband thinks it's adorable. So, obviously, married the right person. But yes, like that's I said, so good. Other, other dudes were like, "Ew, weird." Is that for like grandmas or something? I'm like, yeah, that's so funny. Knew what was up? <laughs> right. Okay. Because now, if you look the style, it like what is it called? Like Grand Millennium or something? I keep on reading that, and like uh, everyone, people are like, Millennium, oh, I love that." Yes. yes. And it's like. I want to wear prairie dresses, and I'm like, okay, so that's like the cottagecore grandma mm-hmm. style. So, mm-hmm. girl, it's coming back, but I've always been doing it, okay? Yeah, uh, exactly. We were cool before it came, all right? Yeah, I don't have to, like, go out and buy a new wardrobe because I already had it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's vintage, so whatever, that's a plus, too. Yeah. Yeah. I I love I think comfort is probably like my number one thing that I, I it's like comfort is it colorful and bright and fun, um but also do like I feel good in it you know what I mean like there are things that that like my husband will be like ooh will you try this dress on and I'll try it on and I don't feel comfortable in it or you know like I don't feel like it brings me joy and I won't wear it. I'll be like, baby, look so sexy in it. I'm like, yeah, and but yet it doesn't, like, bring me joy. So I just feel like it's kind of me. So I'm not going to wear it. Or I don't feel comfortable in it, so I'm not going to wear it. So Yeah, um, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, a conversation I have with myself all the time. Like, especially thrifting. Like, just because it fits me doesn't mean it's right for me. And I yes. don't want to, like, put it back, you know. But I think that's, that's so funny. It's like gain with like life experience where you're yes. like, now I know who I am and I'm mm-hmm. not like what I can afford or fit into. It's like yes. what I like and what my personal style is. And that's like well, part of growing up, you know? Well, that's exactly, you know, you're so right because we, especially being in a larger body growing up, all I could buy was like grandma clothes or things. I'm like, Oh, this fits. I'm going to buy it. Oh, this fits. Mm-hmm. I'm going to buy it. And so when I started this, this thrifting thing, that is what where I went wrong. I started doing that. I'm like, oh, this could be cute if it was styled with X, Y, Z. But I was having to put so much more work into things because I was like, oh, well, I could get this and I could put it with this and I could put it with this. Oh, and I need to find this. And then it would make a really cute outfit. And now what I'm doing to try to provide, like, less work for me is, like, I'm really being very specific in the things that I am um, choosing because to sell because like I want it to be things that I love and things that I think people would love and they would it would bring them joy because that's that's like literally my whole concept behind my plus closet is just to like empower and uplift and encourage and um, be a bright spot in people's days and so I'm like a, a basic long sleeve shirt is cool but you know or like you know a, a camisole or whatever you know that's cool and all but like you're gonna have to do a bunch of different things to make it look cute so like what are these big statement things that I can purchase for people in a larger body so they can say you know like I see this I don't have to put much effort into it but I'm still gonna look fly um so just also like just like you said though like it's ingrained in us or it wasn't me as a child like 
oh, I don't really like this, but it fits me, so I'm going to wear it. And yeah, I, I can afford it. Because I feel like for me, yes. it's like, we're poor. So mm-hmm. afford, I guess this is what I'm going to wear. And it's like, yeah. as I got older, I was like, what I'm going to wear has nothing to do with the size of it or even mm-hmm. the price of it. It's going to be about, like, what feels right to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, I love that. I love uh, I'm just so excited that more and more people are, like, seeing this now, and I, like, wish that this world had existed when I was, like, 19 years old. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, I just want to thank you for what you do because, I mean, I think I knew a lot of the things – or not knew. And maybe in the back of my head wondered, well, how is this company able to charge $4 for a pair of pants? I'm confused. Like, what are people not getting paid and they're giving free shipping? Something is not right. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. So you've really put, like, just an emphasis on all of that for me, and it's been so enlightening, also pretty pretty frightening. Um, but also, like, even the clothes and thrifting, like, you know, I remember asking or saying to my husband, like, oh, I feel bad because I don't want to take from, you know, people who really can't only afford, you know, thrift clothes, even though, like, I'm pretty much one of those people. I'm really, like, frugal slash, yeah, we don't have a lot of money, but, like, also I still see my privilege. But I told him, I was like, I feel bad, you know, and then I asked the company, like, at the places that I shop there, like, family-owned places, and they hire, like, Actually, I don't think I've ever seen anybody else other than a, a Mexican woman, which those are my people. So, like, I love that, you know, I'm shopping somewhere and I know that they get a paycheck from it and they actually like their jobs and that brings me joy. Um, and they're so helpful um, to me when I'm in there. But I was asking, like, what happens with all the clothes? And they're like, oh, it goes – some goes in the trash. Like, it gets shipped off to X, Y, Z. But, like, because they rotate it so frequently. And so I was able to come to the conclusion, like, there is enough for everybody. Oh. We have so much. Yeah, there's just so much. It's just – Literally, this the shop that I go to put they get rid of their old stuff and put new stuff in every Wednesday, and I'm just like, what? How do y'all do that? Like, you know what I mean? Wow, so, that's a lot of work too. When I think about how much stuff is in like every thrift store, yeah, kind of crazy. But yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I told you this too when you messaged me, where I was like, listen, those stores get way more than they could mm. ever sell because yeah. that's yeah. how fast. People are cycling through clothes. So yes. if you see something that you think is going to be good for someone else, you should grab it because odds are high it's going to get. You know, it might yeah. get overseas. It might get recycled, like shredded. Right. Like, you know, get it now. That's how I feel. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, man, they're going to, like, clear this out tomorrow, and it's just been here all week, and I've seen it three times every time I've come. Like, I have to have it, you know. Um, and so at first that's how it was. Now I'm just like, if I see it, I'm going to grab it. Um but anyways, all that's to say, I just, I really cannot believe how much stuff we have. Like, I just. Oh, I know. Ugh, it's wild. And so I'm even constantly purging. Um, but also, like, I don't want to be an excessive buyer either. You know, it, it's this weird thing, like, for me. It's like, I don't want to buy excessively when I don't have a real genuine need um, for myself. So I'm always trying to be conscious of that. But then I also do this, like, whole other side of the spectrum well if I don't like it I could sell it in the shop <laughs> so I'm yeah that's really hard I would like yeah. I think that's the reason I don't have a shop because I would go oh, I would go out of control I don't trust myself at all 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy, girl. It's easy. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that I got to talk to you today. Uh, Me too. I think everybody is going to really love hearing from you. Well, I am ecstatic. Thank you so much for asking me. Um, I just think it's really important to to just talk about size inclusion and the, the the need for it and also thrifting. Oh, my gosh, if I could tell more people to thrift, I would, even though that's my job. <laughs> I, still, I still think, like, hey, buy secondhand. Like, there are so many items of clothes that have so much life to, left in them. Isn't it Estella the best? <laughs> I've been thinking so much about our conversation. I think one great thing for all of us to think about going forward is why we wear what we wear. Is it for others? Is it to fulfill someone else's expectation of what we should wear and how we should feel when we're wearing it? Because getting dressed for yourself and only yourself is like the best feeling ever. And it liberates you from the constant cycle of trends and buzz brands and other nonsense that the industry throws at us constantly. And I hope, since our last episode with MP of Ungarbage Magazine, that you're all thinking about liberating yourself from all the stupid nonsense that is marketed to us all year long. Also, as a community, let's redefine what it means to be comfortable in your clothes. Instead of thinking about it literally meaning comfy clothes like sweatpants and leggings, let's view it as what feels comfortable for us from a psychological perspective, like that confidence that comes from being your true self. What can you wear that makes you feel most like yourself? For me, it's always a dress. That's my comfort zone. I feel like my best self. When I wear jeans, I feel like I'm wearing a costume. It's just not who I am. Maybe for you, jeans are the garments that most personify you. Maybe you like a big sweater or a froofy blouse or an awesome t-shirt. Some people feel their best in a bodycon dress. It's all about what's right for you. Don't let anyone change that. Anyway... <laughs> I feel like I'm lecturing you a lot today. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying it. You can find Estella on Instagram at Estella's Plus Closet. If you've reached out to me about secondhand clothing and plus sizes at any point, I've already sent you her way. I just love what she does. She has a great eye. Tell your friends. Tell everyone. Go check out Estella. Okay, now it's time for the main event, my conversation with Jess from Fab Scrap. Today, I'm excited to welcome Jess to the podcast. Jess is the founder and CEO of Fab Scrap, which we've talked about on previous episodes. So this is like, this is like a major celebrity guest. <laughs> Jess and I met on a panel conversation a couple months ago, and we just had so much to talk about. We were like, let's, you know, let's make this official. Let's record it. So Jess, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm also so excited to be here. Um my name is Jessica Schreiber. I'm the founder and CEO of FabScrap. Um, FabScrap is a four-year-old nonprofit in New York City. We're working with the fashion industry to recover unwanted excess material and redistribute it to designers, artists, students, teachers, creatives who can use it. And you can buy fabric from them, right? Like you guys have a storefront where people can buy salvaged fabric. We have a B2B 
part of our business where we're providing service to the fashion companies in New York City. And then B2C, where we can, we're reselling as much of that recovered material as possible. Um, We also aim to give away as much as we sell. So we have a thrift store in Manhattan, our warehouse in Brooklyn, and then our online store, which has kind of exploded over the course of the pandemic. But really just trying to get as much of this beautiful designer material into the hands of people who can upcycle it and save it from landfill. And yeah, the the warehouse is a journey. Um, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's about 60, 65,000 pounds of material that we still need to sort through. Um, oh so that was that mountain of bags um, that you saw. And we sort through all of that with volunteer help. Um, so slowly making our way through fashion's trash. <laughs> and so this is pre-consumer, right? Which means we're not talking about the clothes that have already been bought and exist. This is like manufacturing related, correct? Right. So that's where a lot of people get confused about what we do. Um, there's so many great nonprofits and orgs and even for-profit companies now that are getting into the post-consumer, like textile reuse and recycling world. We're very specifically, and as far as I know, the only org that's focusing on all of the textile waste that happens in making those pieces of clothing. Um, So we're getting like cutting room scraps, lots and lots of fabric swatches and fabric samples that go between mills and brands, um, sample garments, mutilated garments, and then all of the excess sample yards or rolls of fabric that get tossed out. Um, So there's so much waste that happens even just in making clothing. But I think more people are familiar with all of the clothing waste end of life, like after it's been used. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. We definitely, we talk about that so much more. And obviously I would, I'm speculating here. You're the expert that ultimately there's way more post-consumer fabric than pre-consumer. Right. But still there's a ton. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons that I really like focusing on pre-consumer is because I think there's so much change that needs to happen within a company, not just in their waste practices, but in how they're designing and the responsibility they have for the clothing that they're designing. Because yes, post-consumer clothing is so much more wasteful, but whether or not that clothing can be recycled or reused multiple times, like that's a design decision. And so this is a way for us to start to have those conversations with the source and really try and make changes from within, as opposed to just blaming the consumer um, for what their what their options are when they're buying clothes. Right. And so you you are back your background is actually in sanitation, correct? Yeah. Which I was very excited about because I have like, I mean, I could talk about trash all day. It's always on my mind in one way or another. And you said, you know, it was really important to you that we talk about the benefits of donation versus throwing your stuff in the trash. So we're going to get to the corporate responsibility in a moment, but just in terms of like our personal as consumers choices, you have a lot of feelings about why that are correct, of course, that are about why it's (laughs) better to donate versus just going out and putting everything in the trash can. Yeah. So, right. My background is waste management. Um, So I come to fashion by way of trash. Um, (laughs) That is not my fashion was not my like school training or expertise. Um, 
But in working at the Department of Sanitation, I was responsible for New York City's clothing recycling program, Refashion NYC, which little plug if you're listening in New York, they provide free donation bins for apartments with more than 10 units so that you can donate clothing, shoes, handbags, basically from your laundry room or basement. And it goes directly to Housing Works. It's orchestrated by the Department of Sanitation. So I was working at Sanitation when that program launched and and managed it for its first five years. We also did a curbside collection of clothing pilot right before I left. So I, I'm definitely familiar with post-consumer. I've <laughs> sorted clothing at Goodwill. Um, so yeah, that was sort of my entry point. Um, and yeah, I, I do feel really strongly about the choice to like donate or try and resell as opposed to throwing out old garments with some exceptions, socks, underwear, please don't donate them. <laughs> but I think the real benefit of donation is that whatever, wherever you choose to donate, the benefit of donating is that that organization can resell that clothing and it supports whatever their mission is. And so mm-hmm. for Housing Works, it was working with people who were struggling with homelessness or with HIV. And so that at least gives the nonprofit sector its first source of income Past Mm -hmm. that, a lot of used clothing all ends up at the same place. There's these, if you consider the thrift stores the first secondhand market, there's like a second market behind that, a second (laughs) secondhand market. And those sorters receive sort of all of the excess. um, And there's a lot of different ways that that gets sorted and processed, but it all kind of ends up at the same place once you make that initial choice. And so by choosing a nonprofit at the start, you're at least providing those organizations with resources to continue their mission, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important. Right. Where Because I've had people reach out to me on social media and ask, well, if there's too much stuff going to, like, say, the Goodwill, that they that more than they can ever sell, then it's just going to go to the landfill anyway. So shouldn't I just throw it out? And I'm like, oh my gosh, no, it's like (laughs) there's so many steps in between. So yes, Goodwill receives way more clothing than they can ever sell, but they've been dealing with that problem for maybe more than a decade now. Mm -hmm. So they might not be selling it piece by piece in their stores, but they are able to sell that material in bulk bales to these secondhand markets. Mm -hmm. So it's not providing that like one-on-one transaction within a community necessarily. I think only 15% of what they receive actually ends up in their thrift stores. But behind the scenes, they're bailing all of that and they are selling it in bulk to a secondhand market. So in both cases, it is providing funding for their operations. It's kind of fascinating the steps that these go, like the stuff that gets bailed by the Goodwill these steps that it goes through after that, I mean, these clothes, they get some life, right? Like they'll go to these huge industrial sorting places where people will, who are like experts will literally sort through and pull out what they think is resellable to vintage stores in bulk, you know, to go to rag houses or whatever, what they think is resellable to more like contemporary clothing, like consignment shops and resale stores, what can go overseas and what can be like shredded for industrial use. Like it's, kind of amazing all the places it goes. Yeah. And so many hands and like you're saying, so well um, oriented with what the markets are that they're able to sort so efficiently. Um, I think what's interesting is like Goodwill will do their first sort 
and I say goodwill, but I'm speaking all nonprofits, they'll like do their first sort for what they think that they're able to sell. And then these bales go to the secondhand market. And it's sometimes it's sorting for what can be resold, but sometimes it's just, I need a bale of men's jeans. I need a bale mm-hmm, of women's mm-hmm. dresses or a bale of kids' shoes. And so it's actually also sorting by what the garment is less about like the brand and resale value, but just what the garment is because they'll sell also by like category. Um, and then one of the last times I was at one of those facilities, it was so funny. They had started specifically sorting Christmas sweaters for (laughs) like ugly Christmas sweater sales. So they're also like doing some really seasonal stuff, which I found interesting too. I mean, that's good because those things go to the thrift store or the landfill so fast. Like all of the <laughs> seasonal like Halloween costumes and just, yeah, the Christmas sweaters. There's probably, you know, there's been this like uptick in the past few years on people buying like special 4th of July outfits. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like if there's a way to sell you something, it exists now. So let's talk a little bit about corporate responsibility. We're going to talk about this a lot actually because <laughs> I think there's so much pressure. It's like you as a consumer, the world's weight is on your shoulders. You're the only person who can change things. And yes, there are ways in which we can make change, but unfortunately, these companies, their impact is much bigger. You know, like, sure. like yeah. if, even if all of us totally just somehow lived like a net zero carbon footprint, it wouldn't swing the pendulum that far, unfortunately, because right. there's so much more consumption and waste and all this other stuff. So we talked a little bit about post-consumer versus pre-consumer. And I could not – I was trying to find more information about ways in which companies were recycling their fabrics and other like sampling waste because my experience on the buying side is that – Every buying office is filled from top to bottom 365 days a year with samples. And these are things yeah. that are like shoes, clothes, accessories, you name it. Some of these things will be sampled three, five, ten times until they get to the right place. Most of them are not a quality of which you could really wear or sell them because they're just kind of mocked up. Mm-hmm. And Every job I've had, we would just box this up, box this up, box this up, maybe have a sample sale. We There's like an epidemic of only like left shoes in the world because – Oh, my God, we, yes. We sample them, right? <laughs> and so we – back when I was an assistant buyer, my first role was in shoes and I would box these up periodically and send them to a charity for people who only had one foot. And mm-hmm. I was like, these are – I just think if you only have one foot, you don't want to wear these platform shoes. Like this right. – <laughs> This is just pushing the problem onto someone else. So do you get any of that like sample stuff at Fab Scrap? Are you strictly getting fabric? So it started just fabric. Um, And then what happened was as the design offices or the fabric teams were sending us fabric, they got so excited that this was being recycled or reused or redistributed that then they would say like, well, can you also take our cones of yarn? Can you also Mm -hmm. take our zippers and our buttons? And (laughs) then it became our full leather skins that for some reason didn't pass um, quality checks. So much of that. Yeah. And then now it has started to include um, both samples, but also mutilated garments. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, what we've done, you're right. A lot of them are, a lot of them are still in process of design. And so we'll get garments that have 
like masking tape with Sharpie notes or like Mm -hmm. a hem redone with the whole string of safety pens. And so (laughs) we're getting these like mid design mock-ups. And what we've done is we now have five rolling racks in the warehouse and we call that our mendable station. And Mm -hmm. we get so many fashion students who are visiting the warehouse and wanting to like do things sustainably and upcycle that they can very easily fix or alter those things. And so we are actually moving quite a bit of mendables. Um, I've basically changed my whole wardrobe and just do like little <laughs> mending process, like little mending projects. And that's mostly where I get my clothing now is these mendable garments. And yeah, I think some of them are very wearable. Some of them need a lot of work and lots of, lots of single shoes. So many. I, there's there's literally a mountain of them if you if you collected them all in the world like i can't i can't believe how many of these single shoes i would send i would send out to this single shoe charity all the time <laughs> and and like think about i was that was just like one retailer so think about all the retailers all the vendors who make the shoes right. the designers i mean we don't talk about this very much and i think it's like something that only people in the industry know but it's so much stuff. And the clothing, like the clothing and apparel samples that we get a lot of times, like, like I said, can be mended or we can kind of detrim them and put them into our recycling process. But shoes are almost never made in a way where they can be easily deconstructed into recyclable parts. There's mm-hmm. so much glue or so much stitching or so much just mixed materials like leather on plastic um, that those are so hard to do anything with besides donate or toss. It's true. And a lot of shoe samples come with a hole in the sole so that they aren't resellable. Yeah. So then you can't do anything with those. Right. Like you can't plug up the hole. So shoe. this is, speaking of that not resellable sample, this is something that I have learned more and more about sort of working now on the pre-consumer side. Um, Basically, the reason that things are mutilated with that hole in the sole or will get clothing that just has like a single razor blade slash maybe two inches long down the back of like a shirt. Um, what, what I've heard is that if the sample is not sellable, then the import taxes are cheaper. And it's true. And so it's like this very, very wasteful loophole of like besides this little razor blade slash, like the shirt would be totally wearable or at least donatable. Um, and instead just to save those like couple cents on import, we're creating so much waste. And some of it, some of it's really sad too. I think this was like one of the harder things that we've done is we, we work with a lot of, we work with a lot of children's clothing brands. Um, and, we get stuff that is a totally intact sample, but it can't be donated because it hasn't, because as a sample, it hasn't received all of the fire retardant treatment. And so we can only shred them, like even like where we don't put them out um, in our mendable section. And I think that's, that's such a hard thing for me because how many kids could be using this clothes and how many moms Hmm. Maybe don't want those chemicals on their kids' clothing anyway. <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, I'm we're I'm recording actually later today, an episode about kids' clothing, and what I've learned about flammability on children's clothing, like this concern of it, is like it's sort of a 
fake problem mm-hmm. that started in the mid-century when there were a lot of fires in people's homes, not because children's clothing was flammable, but because of smoking. And people oh, were like wow. really bad at smoking, I guess. <laughs> you know, like they would fall asleep smoking or not fully extinguish or, you know, I don't think ashtrays were even as prevalent. People just put out cigarettes anywhere. Oh and God. so people, whole houses would burn down, you know, families would die, children's would, children would die. And the cigarette industry pushed this agenda, like lobbied the government, like, oh, the real problem here is that ki- kids' clothes, specifically pajamas, yep. are, are flammable. They're a death trap. That's why houses are burning down. And so they started spraying them all with flame retardant, which is incredibly toxic, very bad. I've read so many crazy blogs about how it even flakes off of clothing and creates dust on the floor. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's it's really gross. It's yeah. Like, I – I mean, uh, that is just – that's so frustrating because how many other things that harm so many more people can we not pass a law about? But for some reason, <laughs> there's this law that is creating so much waste and it probably has long-term health effects that we're not even aware of, yet somehow like that has been lobbied and pushed. Exactly. It's so infuriating. I mean, it's like even you talking about the duty on the samples, it was like – making my blood boil because I was even thinking about all the times I would go on buying trips overseas, going literally to go buy samples that we were going to copy because guess what? That's what retail does. Mm -hmm. That's what fashion is. And we would have to, the day before we left in our hotel room, cut holes in everything so we wouldn't pay duty when we flew back with it. And it's like, come on, how much would that have really been? Yeah. And then, and then for for having not destroyed it, who could use that? Who could it be donated to? Like how much longer is that garment going to exist because it doesn't have that two-inch hole in it? I know. I know. I remember buying this scarf that was $400 and having to cut a hole in it. Oh, my and just, God. <laughs> oh, just so sad. Also, we could take it back and make a $12 version of it. Like, wow. Was, there's just so much of this stuff that is – it's like processes and laws and, you know, penny-pinching. All all of this waste comes from multiple sources and it all needs to change for it to be better. It's like that's why it becomes overwhelming, right? Where you're like, okay, well, should I first start pushing the government to stop making clothes flam- unflammable, whatever they think they're doing? <laughs> or should we focus on duties or should we say right. that like – you know, it's like where do you even begin? But I think – that's how insidious all this waste is. And that's why I think that's why I'm, I often when I'm like doing podcasts or panels, I tend to get on an EPR soapbox, which is extended producer responsibility, um, which exists for other um, commodity streams like electronics or tires or mattresses or carpet. But it's essentially saying that so much of what is produced and its end-of-life options, whether or not it's deconstructible, recyclable, reusable, et cetera, is a design decision. And yet designers and producers of any product aren't really having any effect on end-of-life. They're not impacted by Mm end-of-life at all. Once it's sold, it's none of their business. They kind of wash their hands of it, but it has these huge environmental impacts, sometimes health impacts. And so it's how can we hold producers more responsible for the product past point of sale? Because so much happens past that point that was a design decision that they should be held more accountable for, or at least 
at least sort of internalize some of the costs that it costs to dispose of those items, to recycle those items, to like monitor the health costs. And what's mm-hmm. so what's so frustrating is that um, it's such an uphill battle because who wants to take on fighting for kids' clothing to n- not be fireproof? Because it sounds <laughs> like you want kids to possibly catch on fire, which is not the case at all. No, but like no. That's, that's such an easy leap, you know? And so like right. it, it becomes a harder and harder cause to take on for some of these loopholes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, uh, it is such a mountain to climb and I like, once again, it becomes easier to sort of control your own consumption, but when you, I mean, all this, all the ways we've talked about already that probably no one who's listening knew about all these crazy samples and holes and shredding and stuff. Like, it gives you an idea of the scope of what's happening on the corporate side. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing that we wanted to talk about that will really, really disgust you, which is <laughs> returns. Oh my god! Yeah. So. Uh, I did some research into this. Um, I also now have become that person who knows most of the statistics around returns off the top of my head. (laughs) (laughs) So as you know, tons of stuff about, you know, fabric waste. You were everyone's favorite party guest. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So 30 to 40% of all the things we buy online are returned. Um, And, you know, I I am the first to admit that I have been Amanda McCarty. I am a recovering serial returner. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like it is something that picked up steam for me in the e-commerce era where I would be like, okay, well, I'm going to buy that in three sizes because, you know, the size chart is confusing. So mm-hmm. maybe I wouldn't have needed to buy it in three sizes if brands were better about their sizing, right? If they actually stuck to their size chart and made sense. That's a whole thing. Or, well, if I want to get shipping, I need to spend this much. So I will, knowing that I'm going to return it, but at least the shipping will be free. I mean, there's like so many ways in which yeah. <laughs> this works. Um, so 30 to 40% of this gets returned and specifically in clothes, it can be significantly higher. I've seen statistics anywhere from 50 to 70%. I know, I know. But once again, it's like, oh, I have a wedding to go to. I'm going to order 12 dresses Mm -hmm. and keep one. I mean, this is such a common, I would see it in my office around me all the time. All my friends were doing this, right? Yeah. Conversely, buying stuff in real life, like going to a store and buying it, the return rate there is less than 10%. And in the era, the early era of my career where e-commerce was just like an emerging thing, if something had a return rate of 10% in the stores, we were worried. It was like, oh, sound the alarm. We need to do a quality check here. Something is wrong with this garment. And I saw as, as e-commerce you know, took on more and more of all the sales volume that the return rate on everything would increase. And then it would be like, okay, well, if, if something's getting returned more than 20% of the time, then there might be an issue there. And now we're like, oh, if it's just under 40, everything's okay. Like that's, oh my God. (laughs) I know. I mean, that's like where, that's where we are. Um, This holiday season alone, because of COVID, because everybody is buying everything online, retailers are expecting $57 billion in returns. Wow. Um, I know. And I actually think that may end up being a little bit higher because what I have read uh, so far about this year is that like all in all sales are not that great, right? Mm-hmm. But they are significantly higher f- for online than they ever expected. Oh, so wow. it could be higher. In general, every year in the United States alone, $400 billion worth of merchandise is returned. That's in one year. Crazy. 
And that generates 5 billion pounds of waste that goes directly to landfills. Well, why? Because I always believed, you know, I'm going to say this, I've worked as a buyer for a very long time. And I also thought that when I bought something and returned it, someone would open the box, take it out, take a look at it, wrap it back up, put it on the shelf, and then the Mm -hmm. next customer could buy it. That is not true (laughs) at all. (laughs) Uh, So even I would say people who work as buyers in the industry don't know that. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a dirty secret. Uh, We know that a substantial portion of these returns for all of the retailers – World worldwide are destroyed or sold off, but there are literally no statistics about it anywhere because it's so like hidden. Right. And I mean, I would say this is like a testament to just how cheap everything we buy has become, like the cost for the company to manufacture it, because it makes more sense for them to find financially to just toss it than to pay someone to open the box, take a look at it, put it back on the shelf. Yeah, I... I totally agree. And then taking that a step further, that means they're producing how many more because they're expecting I, they're expecting some to come back and just have to toss it. And so to keep inventory levels right, they're they're overproducing even more than the overconsumption that is happening. One hundred percent. And I think that's a really important part of it is that there is no large retailer in the world right now that is is not massively overproducing. Mm-hmm. It, it can range from 20 to 40%. But when you talk about someone who's making millions upon millions of things every year, that's a staggering number. Yeah. And so to your point that like, it's really, really hard to get data on what's happening when something gets returned. It's honestly really, really hard to get data on any waste happening on the corporate side. So like for post-consumer All of that is very meticulously measured. Um, I did it at sanitation. There's waste characterization studies, every city, every municipality, state, um, and even the EPA. They're doing so many studies on what people throw away. But as Mm -hmm. soon as you cross over into what companies throw away, it becomes very, very private. It is almost impossible to find any metrics on what they're throwing away, where it's going, how much, how often, unless it has been in some cases like deemed hazardous and they have to report it. But obviously clothing is not hazardous. Textiles haven't been deemed as hazardous. And so the best estimate that I can find is that for every pound we throw away as a consumer, the business created 40 pounds of waste to get us that product, which means businesses are throwing away 40 times more waste than what we as citizens put on our curb, which is crazy to me that that's just an estimate that comes from the story of stuff by Annie Leonard. She says 40%. I've seen her sometimes in like speaking live or in lectures go to 70%. And none I mean, of it I is. Seven, I believe seventy, actually. Yeah, for every pound we throw away, the business created seventy times more to get us that product. And to be honest, I don't know if that included re- returns, but because returns are that gray area of mm. is it post consumer, is it pre consumer? But if it's returned, technically the business is the entity throwing that out. And so I would, yeah, I would push towards that seventy two, especially if you include returns. That's that's. Ugh. I have like no adjectives for that. So 
you know, I was trying so hard over the last few days to figure out how much these big companies were throwing away. Um, so I'm glad to know it wasn't just me who couldn't find it. But like, yeah, why, very private. Very private. Why is that? So do they use a different service to take away all their trash? Is it yeah. like not public? Exactly. So I can I can kind of speak for New York, but this does happen in like several cities. Um, New York City Department of Sanitation works with residential waste. They're servicing apartment buildings, homes, sometimes nonprofits. Commercial waste is handled in a totally private industry. Um, it's private carters. It's a private contract between the business and the carter. The only regulation there is that because there was so much um, mob affiliation and some of those private <laughs> carters and like racketeering mm-hmm. going on, the city did state like this is the maximum you can charge per ton. So they kind of like set rate limits. But past that, there's really not a lot of like oversight on what happens in private waste um, or commercial waste. And so what's crazy is that if you have a McDonald's next to a movie theater, next to a bookstore, all three of those businesses on the same block could be using three different waste haulers. And so on a single night, three different trash trucks are going down the same block to pick up each of these individual businesses, which also just contributes so much waste in terms of like street traffic and CO2 emissions. And so, so much about private and commercial waste is, is really problematic and very hidden. It's not something that like we think about because, because in most cases we've handled trash so well for residents that like you put it out, (laughs) it disappears. Like we don't really think about it past that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The summer in Philadelphia, there, I mean, there were so many issues with trash pickup and recycling because, you know, the pandemic, right? Like mm-hmm. they were understaffed, people were at home. So there was like double as much trash and our trash wouldn't get picked up for a week or two at a time. And that was when you really started to see how incredible the sanitation system is. Right. <laughs> because I was like, wow, like everyone is throwing out so much stuff. And it was, it was really good for us as a household to be a lot more mindful of what we were throwing out. Yeah. I I mean, I sometimes wonder, and again, I just want to like, this isn't all on the consumer and what we throw away because sometimes the products don't give us a choice of whether or not it's waste. Mm-hmm. But sometimes I wonder like if we weren't handling waste so efficiently and it did sit, <laughs> and it did sit for five days, like would we think differently about what we're putting at the curb because we have to walk past it for the next five days? And like- mm-hmm. Would we compost more then because we don't want our stuff to smell in the totally. sun or like, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's like a double-edged sword, how efficiently waste has been handled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for us, it was really eye-opening because we were recycling so many cans of like LaCroix specifically. <laughs> and I was like, listen, yes, the cans get recycled, but that still consumes energy. You got to take them there, clean them, recycle them, make a new can. So we got a soda stream, but like, it was like a big deal for us. Wow. (laughs) But like, that's, that's what I think, like, that's where the value of information and experience is in changing consumer habits or changing business habits. And so like at Fab Scrap, we're picking up all of this excess material, but every single year we give each company their own report about how much we picked up, what was reused, what was recycled, because without that information, how can you make a decision to change something? And so like, I think that experience and that information is so valuable. 
Well, and I think like even when you're working in those corporate offices, like, you know, dealing with the samples, designing them, whatever, you usually don't have the a clear view of what the end of life of that product is. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's kind of swept away in a very convenient way as well, where you just don't know. It might be like everybody put your boxes at the front of the office and then you never see them again. And you just assume it was all, they were all handed off to people who wore them all and it was great. But mm-hmm. that's not what really happens, you know, because most of the stuff, as we talked about, is not wearable. I do think a shocking amount is probably going in the trash. I mean, even working in offices, I would see people try to recycle like their salad. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> like there's still not very clear education out there about waste in general and yeah. what is reusable and how the the full life of a product really which just people just don't know and so if you're a designer and you know you're being told like listen you need to use this cheaper fabric it's like 100% polyester and i need you to use the 5 cent plastic zipper which will not last more than a couple months but we got to hit this price point. You're like, oh yeah, okay. Like you're not thinking mm-hmm. this isn't going to get worn very much and it's going to go in the trash because yeah. there'll be no salvaging it. You I know? think. I mean, honestly, I think I think it's a lot to ask for someone to understand supply chain and design, and then <laughs> let's also throw in environmental science and climate change and sustainability. Totally, like totally. it's so much to ask of people in this role, particularly when timelines have been so accelerated and everything is moving so fast. And so I think, I think that's where I see so much value in like people collaborating outside of their own industry. Like it was really, Mm -hmm. I felt like it was really innovative the first time that companies reached out to me at sanitation to be like, Hey, we have a waste issue and didn't try and like solve it in house. Like you don't need to be both a fashion expert and a waste expert. Like let's, let's open this up to other industries and collaborate. And I think that's like, that's really important and why it makes the case, I think, for some of these companies to have separate sustainability teams because it's Agreed. how can you know everything? You can't. You can't. And in my experience in larger corporate environments, there's always some sort of like sustainability committee that's like educating people and try to make changes in, you know, in the building mm-hmm. and the campus. But ultimately, it goes back to this like personal sort of consumer accountability for the employees where it's like use less paper when you put things out and (laughs) or you're recycling properly and you know everybody's gonna get a free reusable cup or something and it's like no like let's talk about what's happening on a corporate level here like how many (laughs) containers of product did we bring in overseas and then send straight to the fabric recycler because you know there was a quality issue or something like right we're not we're not talking about that at all. So yeah, I, I I totally agree. I think a lot of times if sustainability is like a committee, then it's sometimes like the only thing that they know is personal changes. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. like, we'll yeah. all use water bottles. We'll change our lights. We'll <laughs> yeah. change the AC settings. But what's more important is those like larger supply change, the systems that production happens. Um, and so I like, yeah, I think when it's a committee, it that's when we kind of get like half results. And that's not something that like even the company really sees worth investing in versus like if you have it as a dedicated team and position and office where there can be real expertise, I think you see much more results. And I kind of, I see this in the same way as, I don't know, a decade ago, 
I was really pushing at sanitation that like we needed a dedicated social media person. And they were like, what? That's just part of marketing. That's part of public education. Like someone can do that. And, and I was like, no, 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 this needs to be its own thing. And I feel like in some cases we're still making that case about a sustainability role. Totally. Totally. Well, and I think also like if you work in that company or you're, you're a member of the general public, you don't understand also the waste because it's so secretive. You know, we're all thinking about it on the personal level. That's all we know. I think mm-hmm. a lot about, I was researching like the origins of greenwashing and the very first instance of greenwashing was in the nineties when hotels started putting those little cards in the rooms that were like, Re- reuse your towels <laughs> and save the environment. And it's like, uh, there are a million other things that this hotel is doing mm-hmm. that is wasteful, far more wasteful than washing my towels. And it wasn't really like their, their strategy in the first place wasn't like, oh, we're going to save the planet by reusing towels. It was we're going to decrease our laundry costs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. by doing less laundry, right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, you know, places I've worked where it's been like, use less paper. Well, that's really benefiting the company. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, on a personal level, none of us, I would hope, are using that much paper every day in the office that that's the whole future of the planet hinges on us printing double-sided. Right. And so <laughs> I think that it's hard for consumers to see that, yes, personal change is important and it's a piece of it, of course. But right. there's this much bigger, much bigger monster out there. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting the way that it's framed, like what you're saying with um, the towels, for example, is like in the long term, it actually saves them laundry costs, but it doesn't have any benefit for the person choosing to go with a dirty towel. Like it's not decreasing, it's not decreasing their room rate. They're not getting like a free bottle of wine because they're making this choice. And so particularly if we like switch that to fashion, there's not... While companies might see savings from some of these choices, which would be great, in more cases, they're passing on any costs of sustainability to the consumer. And so all of a sudden, it seems like sustainability is only possible when it costs so much more, when really I think there's so many ways that you can incentivize that choice by providing extra benefits or extra information. But that piece is totally skipped. Absolutely. I mean, also, I think it's allowed big brands to sort of like... I don't know, weaponize sustainability as like a money-making scheme so they can say, oh, this is our sustainable collection, so all of the things in it are twice as expensive as our normal clothes. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that they were all made in the same factory and like quote-unquote sustainable fabrics are not twice as expensive as a regular old fabric, especially if we're talking about cotton or something. It's like so – yeah. It's, just, it's like a, now we all think sustainability is expensive. Like we've all been trained. Right. And what's so frustrating is even those sustainable fabrics, unless you like really start to dig into them, sometimes they're not even more beneficial or mm-hmm. more sustainable than the like conventional alternative. And so even that marketing piece sometimes can get really frustrating. Totally. And there's no fabric, no matter how, quote, sustainable it is, that means you can buy all these new clothes all the time and wear them a couple times. But right. that is the hope of these companies who are putting out these sustainable collections that you will you'll be like, oh, I'm doing a good thing. Instead of buying one shirt, I'm going to buy two. And that's just not how it works. Well, and that's like the, that's the myth of recycling overall. Like recycling oh. is truly a, a bandaid or like in our minds, a get out of jail free card for our consumption, because it's okay if 
I get this plastic bottle because I'll recycle it and it'll become another plastic bottle versus making a real change to just not consume plastic bottles anymore. And so like recycling in that way sort of like alleviates some guilt, but it doesn't change behavior. And so the option to recycle is not always like the most sustainable thing. That's right. I mean, only 10% of plastic gets recycled in the first place. It can only be recycled like one time for the most part. And there's energy consumed in recycling. Like it, like I was saying earlier about the cans of LaCroix, where I was like, we can't do this anymore. Like, yes, those cans are going to get recycled, but someone has to drive them to the recycling place. There are machines. There, It has to be melted down. It has to be remade. Like this is so wasteful, especially at the – what I felt was a very high volume of consumption that we <laughs> this summer. So at least, at least aluminum is one of those like rare materials that can be recycled multiple times it is, as it opposed is. to almost everything else that can't. It's true. But I was like – and which is like what my husband was telling me. And I was like, yeah, I know, but – <laughs> what if we just didn't use it at all? I like, know, exactly. exactly. And so, level up. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I do think the myth of recycling, the myth of donation, it's like, oh, I can buy all these clothes and then give them to the Goodwill. You know, like we've been sort of band-aiding our consciences with all mm-hmm. of these like ways in which everything is made okay, but that's just not, just not the case. Um, once again, it's not consumers' fault. We're all part of this, and the corporations bear way more responsibility mm-hmm. for all of this waste. And I think, I think because they're the ones profiting off of this, they should be the ones investing in the technology to make it right. Mm-hmm. Like for for example, like the fact that we don't really have fiber to fiber recycling at scale yet, meaning like we could take a cotton shirt, break it down, and then use the cellulose to get a new yarn, weave a new fabric and have a truly fiber to fiber recycled item. I think that all of these companies that are profiting off of how wasteful and how resource intensive and disposable their products are should be the ones investing in changing that system. Mm-hmm. That's where that's where the money is. It's really hard for nonprofits to have shouldered the weight of clothing waste for so long. It's true. I mean, it goes back to this like lack of responsibility about the end of life for these garments. It's like they sell it and that's it. I know I was reading a while back that in France, there there are a lot more laws in place around that. They were the first to pass EPR for textiles, which is so incredible. Um, And I've also heard recently that they are putting some policies in place that would restrict the types of blends in a fabric so that things can be more easily recycled or deconstructed, which I think is so innovative because that's one of the hardest pieces of recycling fabrics is there is infinity combination yeah. <laughs> of fiber blends, like, because you can change so many different percentages and add stretch and there's so many different fabrics in, in their like composition that limiting that really gives end of life more of a chance. Right now, you know, it's like very profitable for companies to continue to just make stuff with this crappy fabric like that's, you know, not to not invest in changing because they don't want to spend the money Mm -hmm. to swap out machines, retool factories, do a lot more research and development. It's just so easy to continuously turn a profit right now and turn a blind eye to the waste of it all. And I, I ask myself a lot, like, how do we force them? to care about that, to make those shifts. Yeah. I, this is where when, for as much as we've said, like 
the waste issue is not necessarily like a consumer problem, but Mm -hmm. this pressuring or like what would incentivize a company to change, like that can actually come from consumers. So FabScrap works with almost 500 fashion companies now. Um, And what's interesting is I see two different consumers in the minds of these companies when I talk to them. Um, One of the consumers doesn't care about sustainability at all, is only looking at price, like nothing else matters. And so the cheaper, the better, because Mm -hmm. sustainability is not a, a factor. And then there's this other consumer that is so concerned with sustainability that the company is afraid to share any of their actions or steps towards sustainability because they're afraid they're going to be like nitpicked and criticized. And so they have this view of the consumer that's polar opposites of not caring, not knowing anything, and at the same time, knowing everything and being hypercritical. (laughs) And so like, (laughs) I think one of the ways to merge that is that like, both of this speaks to like the consumer is important and what the consumer wants is important. And so as consumers asking brands, who made my clothes? Where is my clothing made? Can I recycle this? Those questions actually do make their way into decisions because they care very much what their customers want and what they will buy. And so just by being more proactive and asking, I think that's a first step. And the second step is I think we have to applaud and encourage steps. So like no company is going to become sustainable overnight. It's like we've been saying too big of a mountain to climb, but when Mm -hmm. they're making steps, let's applaud that and support that and continue to encourage them to do more and keep asking questions and keep wanting to see information and transparency because like just from hearing what the brands that we work with, which is a small sample, but 500 fashion companies, the consumer matters quite a bit. And so when you are tweeting and emailing and asking questions and sharing what is important to you, brands do feel very compelled to listen. It's true. I mean, there are some who do not care and they uh, you should probably shouldn't be giving them your money in the first place because they're not going to change at all. But I think especially a lot of the like younger brands do care and they see a direct correlation between making their customers happy and making money. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some of the larger corporations have decided to take a different approach. You know, like you can tweet it Amazon all you want, but like that's probably not going to be enough of a change. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they, like they, they're just like, whatever. But I think especially if it's a brand that you actually really love, that you are a big fan of, a regular customer, that you see doing good things already, it is not a bad thing to continue to ask them Mm -hmm. to answer the questions. It's not going to hurt their feelings. It's going to show them what's important to you and help them do a better job. It's not like us versus them. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think even with those big companies, I think sometimes they're doing things behind the scenes that they – that just may not be apparent to the consumer. And so even just asking them to share because yes, like a shift at like, say for example, the volume of like an Eileen Fisher and a change there does have an impact, but think about the exponential change and how much more impact it would have if like a Walmart made a change. I know. I know. I have heard that Walmart is working on some stuff actually. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think, I think it's also like, 
as these smaller brands start to grow in popularity and make these changes, it changes what is competitive in the industry. And it's not that, and big retailers will take notice of that. And so it all kind of builds this tide. And so starting with brands that can make the changes first until that becomes the expectation and the norm, like that's why we see things like a conscious collection is because that that mentality has already seeped into like a larger conversation and they might not be able to change as much as quickly, but even a small change at a Walmart is exponentially more impactful than a small brand making a bunch of big changes. I mean, I think I look at it, if you don't believe that small brands can have a, like a big effect, I would, I would ask everybody to think about the rise of e-commerce. Like (laughs) in the early off, there were companies that really ran with it. Like I even look at like Mod Cloth or Nasty Gal, which are both places I've worked, but they were also part of these like pioneers of the early era era of Mm e-commerce. And they sort of pushed other brands to be like, oh, maybe we should sell more stuff online too. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, I know I'm going to say this name wrong, but I like Glossier or is it Glossier? Glossier. yeah. 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 Like that direct to consumer makeup, like I didn't know any other brand doing that. No, no. Yeah. And like, and now look how that like paved the way for a Kylie Jenner to just be like direct to consumer. It does, small brands can really change the conversation. And so starting there is important. And then it leads the way for these bigger brands to totally change the supply chain. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that I've worked for small brands and I've worked for big brands. And let me tell you, the big brands are watching the small brands constantly. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, finding those smaller brands that you support and like continuing to support them and kind of like, uh, I don't know, like amplifying their message out there can be really beneficial because it says to someone like Walmart, oh, people do care about, uh, you know, natural fibers or something. I pulled that one out of the mm-hmm. air, but you know what I mean? Like for people, sure. Yeah. People care. And, and sometimes it's kind of crazy because when you think about these large companies, they have way more resources at their disposal, but there's so much fear about change. Yes. Like it's, it's like if you were trying to take a left turn, uh, like on a huge cruise ship, you can't just do that. Right. But if you're mm-hmm. on a bike, you can immediately like lean in and turn. And the smaller companies can be, despite totally, you know, bootstrapping it all together and not having all of these resources, they can take those risks in a different way. It's kind of interesting to me. It kind of liberates you from like, but this is how we've always done it. Right. The innovation at a small scale can really create bigger changes once it's like more readily adoptable. Yeah. Yeah. Like they just, they just have to see it. Mm -hmm. Like I, in the era where Nasty Gal and Mod Cloth were really coming up and selling all this stuff online, like every day, I was working for a huge like retailer that had a very similar target customer. Mm -hmm. And our website was so crappy that it would go down for days at a time. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, okay, but like those people are making it work. So we should probably try. And there would literally be teams finding out like, who's hosting their site? How are they managing the data? Like what's up with their warehouse? Like copying these innovators basically. I also, I mean, this is, this is maybe a tangent, um, but I'm just so interested too in how advertising completely shifted to social and how influencer, like how influencers are now part of a brand strategy. And that, Mm -hmm. I don't know, even like five years ago was not a thing. Small brands took the lead on that. And and now now there's these huge corporations who are doing these paid partnerships. Yeah, like Amazon does a ton and Nordstrom mm-hmm. and 
in the early part of my career pre-Instagram, you know, if you wanted to market your products, you would send samples to a magazine and maybe it would get shot. Uh, (laughs) You would maybe sponsor events. Even that kind of came a little bit later. And so maybe then there were, you know, then there were like style blogs. Maybe you'd get some of those people to wear your clothes. But in general, like there weren't a lot of options there. And I've seen how like, oh, why would we send stuff to a magazine? Those are over, right? We don't do that anymore. And like we don't don't sponsor events anymore or put on events because we could just send some clothes to an influencer and they could wear them to the event, you know? And it has, it has changed. I do think that something I think about all the time though, is that influencers have kind of, I don't know, not all influencers, right? Hashtag not all influencers. (laughs) Influencers have kind of perpetuated the fast fashion cycle and maybe even sped it up because they're not Uh, wearing the same outfit twice ever. mm -hmm. And that, oh my God, outfit of the day drives me crazy. Me too. Drives me crazy. (laughs) Me too, me too. And that's, that's a real problem. Like most people think a garment is old after they've worn it twice. There's statistics Mm -hmm. around that and it's, it, I think social media is a big part of that, you know? For sure. And that's that goes back to, I think it's a lot to ask someone who is so proficient and such an expert in social media and blogging and w- using that as their career to also have an expertise knowledge of sustainability right. and like and the impact of what they're doing. And so there's this really great org um, that I worked with briefly um, Mo Durable, who they're um, having influencers apply to be part of a cohort that gets sustainability training and so that they can be more aware of what they're sharing, its impact, and they can start to sort of sprinkle in sustainability information in their larger ad platform or their larger content calendar. And I think stuff like that is so important because it's it's impossible for somebody to understand the ramifications of the Amazon jacket that they just promoted if if they don't have the background and expertise of someone in fashion or waste management or human rights or do you know there's too mm-hmm. much and mm-hmm. so i think it goes back to that education piece or like dedicated sort of orgs cross collaborating Oh, totally. Totally. And I think that is such a good idea because I don't think influencers are out there like, hey, hey, hey. No. destroying the world by wearing outfit of the day. Like, no. (laughs) And, you know, the reason this podcast exists is because most of this stuff that we talk about here, no one knows. Right. It's like a surprise every episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I wanted to talk about returns a little bit more because mm-hmm. I, when Jess and I were preparing for this episode, I told her how I'd read this recent Canadian article about this like undercover sting operation with Amazon returns. <laughs> and I had to like read it again. And I was like, I have to share. I, first off, I wanted you just to hear this story because it's really crazy. And it really is a good illustration of how online returns work right now. But I also thought I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty juicy, okay? (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) So uh, the CBC, which is a Canadian broadcasting company, has a program called Marketplace. And they did this investigation into Amazon Canada. And basically, I mean, what they found is that perfectly good brand new items are being liquidated by the truckload, sometimes even destroyed or sent to a landfill. And 
some experts that they talked to just within Canada were telling them that they were pretty sure because once again, like Jess said, all of this is like so opaque and secretive and like mm-hmm. done under the darkness of night or something. <laughs> uh, the experts who were kind of watching waste management felt that Amazon alone in Canada was sending hundreds of thousands of returns each year to landfills. But once again, there's like no clear definition around this. So the first, some, some people, like some journalists from Marketplace, went undercover as new clients to tour a Toronto e-waste recycling and production destruction facility. They took hidden cameras with them. Um, so this wow. is a place that would be handling like anything electronic that you bought from Amazon or any other retailers. So during that meeting, a person who worked for this recycling company said, yes, we get, quote, tons and tons of Amazon returns, and that every week their facility alone would break apart and shred at least one tractor trailer load of Amazon returns. Oh, my God. Sometimes up to three to five in a week. And remember, this is just electronics that we're talking about. Wow. And uh, the operations manager of this plant, I guess you might call it, facility, said, quote, we're not the only ones. We couldn't handle all of Amazon. There's no way. It's so, it's like cockroaches. It multiplies. It's incredible. The the same operations manager also said some of it will go into landfill. Like nothing 100% goes into recycling. It's just not possible, which goes back to what Jess was talking about, this idea that like everything gets recycled and it's a really great story. And it's like (laughs) a redemption arc for our garbage, right? It's not true. (laughs) So the people at Marketplace were like, okay, so we know that stuff is, at least electronics are definitely being destroyed. But what about other things? So they bought these like little GPS trackers. This is so genius. I love this story so much. And they bought a dozen different things off of Amazon. So they bought a faux leather backpack, some overalls, a printer, a coffee maker, a small tent, children's toys, and some other household items. And then they put a little tracker in each of them and sent them back as a return. So they didn't even like really open them. They didn't use these products. They just opened the box, put the tracker in, and, and boxed it back up, right? So they found, I mean, this is so cool. It must have been so awesome to like follow this data, even though it's all. Yeah, I'm like, where's the Netflix special on this? Like, I need to see the whole I thing. know, it's so cool, right? <laughs> so a lot of these returns took a very long and convoluted path, just like all over Canada, often covering several hundreds, sometimes even thousands of kilometers to reach their final destination. Like there was a set of toy blocks that they returned. Once again, All they did was open them, put the tracker in, and close the box back up. It traveled 950 kilometers before that one. This was a happy ending. This one actually went to a customer in Quebec, so that was good. A printer traveled more than 1,000 kilometers just sort of circling around southern Ontario and never was rebought by anyone. It was just like in a truck, I guess, circling around. (laughs) Um, Here's where it gets down to the nitty-gritty. Of the 12 items that they returned – only four were resold to new customers at the wow. time that they published this story. Months on from the investigation, uh, while a few traveled to some strange corners of Canada where they're speculating that maybe they were being sold to resellers, some of them went to the landfill, including a brand new bow leather backpack. That one went wow. to the landfill. Um, they did a 
I mean, this 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 program sounds really soapy because they actually took some Amazon customers, drove them to this landfill, and we're like, "How oh would you feel if your stuff went here?" <laughs> wow, <laughs> people are upset, you know, obviously. But I think you can look at this now. Obviously, this is only twelve items. So this is not like perfect science here. No, st- no statistician is going to like us, but. What we're saying is that two-thirds of the items returned were not resold to customers. And when you think about Amazon selling billions of items every year, mm-hmm. probably trillions, actually. I mean, wouldn't you think? People buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. When yeah. you think about the scale of what they're selling and what's being returned, like if 30 to 40 of that percent of that stuff is getting returned and then two-thirds of that is only – is not being resold, we're talking just – mountains upon mountains upon mountains of stuff. Now, some of these pallets of return, some of these returns are palletized and sold off to jobbers. So they'll just buy mm-hmm. like, it's not even like they know what they're getting. Uh, one one of these jobbers complained that Amazon will put all the good stuff around the edge of the pallet where you can see it. And then mm-hmm. the center will just be junk. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if that much work is going into it though. Like they're Oh no, for sure. They do that with bales of clothing going overseas oh, as well. Really? <laughs> yeah. Trust no one. Okay, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like the volume of returns that Amazon alone is dealing with are it's like the stuff is just coming in one door and going out the other because like there's there, there's not enough manpower to handle it. And like they're not gonna put the money into hiring people to handle it all. So it was surprising to me that they would have at least the time to make a pallet look better than it was. But they talked to some of these jobbers who are buying these pallets and they were like, yeah, you know, the out- stuff on the outside is always really good. You have to set yourself up to know that probably whatever's on the inside, you're just going to throw out. Um, so wow. this stuff is still ending up in the landfills, just in a different, taking a different path. Mm-hmm. And once again, there's just like no transparency around that. And I find that so frightening. Yeah, I like the anything that happens in terms of waste or secondhand markets in a business context has not been more tracked is is so crazy to me. I just even from a business perspective, I feel like that should be part of like what you're internalizing and like I know. <laughs> and examining. Um yeah, I I think that's the transparency that's needed there is like is like deafening, like how much is missing from that conversation. Um, I also think like what's so interesting about this, you're saying like how expensive it is to like actually rebox, resend, like restock, like reverse logistics have really just not been solved properly mm-hmm. and, and returns. And I think the accelerated rate of returns because of the accelerated push to online, like returns maybe can help solve that, but reverse logistics should more be put into that process could also help with like take back programs and recycling programs and sorting and, and redistribution and repair. And, and yeah, all of this just like screams to me that not enough investment or attention has been paid and not enough information has been gathered about anything past point of sale. And that's so disappointing because that's still to me a, a business operation. Oh, 100%. I, over the last couple of weeks, as I was preparing to record this, read so many sort of like industry think pieces about how companies, you know, had to grow really, really fast for e-commerce and like 2020 has really pushed it. And so all of the time and energy has been going into 
improving and developing the customer facing experience across all mm-hmm. regards and that no one has put any money into what you're calling like the reverse logistics. And even now, barely anyone wants to touch it. Like I read about a company that was trying to make this easier to return things and put them away. And companies were sort of like, that's just not our priority right now to pay for that software. Like they're, like they're just like not interested kind of. And yeah. And I think that's like what you were saying is like, if the product is so cheap that it doesn't matter if you can reclaim it, then why put money towards reclaiming it? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. And I will say that there are a few large companies out there right now that focus on just handling returns. So that's another thing, important thing to think about. Like if you buy something from, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just going to say anthropology because that's top of mind. Just because you bought it from anthropology and it shipped from them doesn't mean that's where your return is going. And Mm -hmm. this is a very widespread, like more retailers than not are doing this. Like I know Nordstrom does this too, where you are actually sending your return to a third-party company that handles them. And in that situation, 100% those are not going back into inventory. Oh my gosh. Can I tell like a quick story about this? Like your timing to like bring this point up is so appropriate. Okay, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, a quick fraud story to this point. Okay. So there is a company – um, that is fraudulently using FabScraps address at our warehouse as their return address. <gasps> and so we are receiving so many return packages from this company. And because their return address and their contact info is my return address and my contact info, I can't even like reach out to them and like send a cease and desist or tell them to take it down. So we're receiving all of this product. I went through some of their like their contact forms and chats. And I was like, we're receiving your product. Please remove this address. And they're like, you can just keep those. We don't really need them back. You can just keep those. And I was like, the point is I don't want them. And so like, we're we're starting to like reject them at USPS. We're rejecting them from FedEx. But then I know they're likely just holding them probably will eventually waste them. But it's this actual like fraudulent scam because then these customers are like, I did send it back. I sent it to the return address and the company saying they never received it. Oh my gosh. That is so scammy. (laughs) So scammy. And it's been so frustrating. And so like, yeah, I think again, reverse logistics are just like, nobody wants to deal. And this example is like in extreme, but like, they just were like, well, we don't really, we don't really need the product back. You can keep it. Um, and it started with sort of these, um, to me, very creepy lifelike reborn dolls, <laughs> like baby dolls is what we started getting. But now it's also becoming like cozy chic, like Christmas sweaters and Christmas things. Oh um, and so like, they're just, yeah, they're like, we don't want the, we don't need the product back. You can keep it. And I'm like, that's not what I'm complaining about, but also like, that's so problematic. I know. And but that does, I mean, that, I can't even believe this. I mean, I do believe this is real, but what a perfect story to illustrate this. Like that's (laughs) how expensive right now and expensive being a relative term, right? But to companies, how expensive reverse logistics are, they'd rather say, hey, you random place, you could just keep that stuff. It's no big deal. We don't need it back. It would be way more expensive for us to unpack the boxes and deal with it, you know? And I think that's so crazy, but that is happening on a huge level. Like I can think of two companies specifically I know there are many, many more uh, Nugistics and Narvar. 
Uh, if you ever see anything with like that on the label, when, on your return label, which you will see a lot, sometimes you go to a retailer to their site to return and it kind of opens a new window that literally is taking you into Narvar or logistics. And these are companies mm -hmm. that solely are taking your returns and then they charge, they charge the retailer like a fee and they unpack them and then they decide what to do with that stuff. It doesn't go like, wow. it doesn't go back to Nordstrom, for example. Wow. Yes. That's crazy. It's so crazy. And I have worked in companies where we've been approached by them to, to take this on for us. You know, like this is such a pain point for so many companies that that's a better I route wonder, for them. I wonder if, um, this is so random, but there, I've seen these ads on Instagram where it's like, you pay $15 and we send you a box mm -hmm. and you don't know what you're going to get. It could be something worth $5. It could be something worth $500, but you're just going to get something. And I feel like that would be a perfect opportunity for these companies that are just taking everything back and having to decide what to do with it. Just like send it to, send it to someone else and just redistribute all of this waste. And then again, it becomes the consumer problem, that's, right? Of like, right. can I put this at the curb or can I, like, what do I do with it when I'm like, even if I don't want it, cause it's likely, <laughs> it's likely returned for a reason. Like, yeah, that it just, the ways to somehow keep pushing this back on the consumer is so incredible to me. It is, it is because, you know, even as a consumer, like, you know, here at our house, we can only, we live out in the country now, we have to pay for our trash to like a, a third party mm -hmm. service and we can only put out one can a week. So if I start buying pallets of returns from these like random people <laughs> and I get it and the outside is great and then I, I open inside, it's like garbage. Like I can't even, that's a burden for me as, as right. an individual to throw out. And this is like a huge business right now. I have been digging into it so much. There are so many different services and companies that are making money by gathering up all these returns and selling them off to people to resell on Poshmark or eBay or Facebook Marketplace mm -hmm. or in their own store. And so this stuff is still out there being someone else's problem. And just think about how much some of this stuff is traveling around. Right. I the even even in us opening our online store, like one big consideration for us was we're saving this material from landfill and it's going to go somewhere, hopefully where it can be upcycled and reused. But do we undo the environmental good of upcycling with the CO2 to ship it somewhere? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so like those, those calculations can get so complicated and so specific. It's one of the reasons like we don't ship internationally. Um, and so, yeah, I the traveling of this, not to mention like the initial cost of resource to make whatever it is. I think all of that is, is not part of the accounting for the product's price or the bottom line of the company who made it. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Could you imagine if Amazon had to pay a fee for the CO2 impacts of shipping all of their packages? Like, I don't think we would have next day delivery. <laughs> Um, no, and I think I saw something. I don't know if you've seen this. I read an article earlier this week about how there's a proposal that uh, anyone who receives a package in New York that's not medicine or food would have to pay a $3 charge. 
Again, it's so frustrating that it comes back to the consumer. It's a lot of money. You know what I mean? It is. Like there's sometimes I won't order delivery because it's there's a delivery fee. Like I (laughs) I will go pick it up. And so I feel like when you don't necessarily have those same options and it becomes like the consumer decision or the consumer um burden to bear, it's missing the point of like again, those bad policies, like going back to like the the fire proofing on the kids' clothes. Like those policies are impacting the environment or people or consumers or individuals in ways that they're not intending. And they're mm-hmm. totally missing the source, which is the producers, the distributors, the manufacturers, the retailers. Like they're missing they're not having the intended impact or consequence no, in the correct place. Totally not. And like, why isn't Amazon paying that $3? Also, why $3? I have so many questions, but I I, I saw <laughs> that and people were like, this is such a great idea. And I was like, this is a terrible idea because once again, it's the individuals who are bearing the brunt of this. And like Amazon yeah. should be paying for how they're sending around all these pallets of stuff or tossing out a perfectly good full oh my backpack. God. And if imagine if $3 per package, Amazon had to pay that to the state, imagine how much more funding, imagine how much more funding that would put into like programs that desperately need it, like housing and schools and education and our streets. And like, there's so many other programs that could benefit from a tax like that. And Amazon by far has the funds to do that. I know. I know. They do. They do. I mean, like talk about, but that's why it's like, yeah, tax the company, not the individual. Like even even when there's like plastic bag bans. When I was working at sanitation is when we banned electronics from going to the curb. Mm-hmm. And a big piece of that was like there should be no fee to the consumer, to the recycler when they put something out at the curb because these items, whether or not they're recyclable, is a producer and manufacturer decision. And so manufacturers had to pay the state to fund the recycling. And that's more how those should work. But these like plastic bag bans where now I'm paying 10 cents at the register to use a paper bag, you're missing the point. <laughs> like you're missing the point. The the manufacturers of the bags need to be paying that to fund the recycling. Thank you, Jess, for taking the time to sit down with me for Close Horse. It was so fun. And we actually talked for hours and it was just such a great afternoon. (laughs) The good news is that she'll be back in the next episode with even more eye-opening information and thoughtful ideas. So that will be coming on Sunday. You can learn more about FabScrap and their mission at fabscrap.org and on Instagram at fab underscore scrap. Before I sign off here and tell you to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, like I always do, I just want to reiterate Jess's point that we must work to hold the big companies accountable. This means emailing, tweeting, leaving Instagram comments, and of course, withholding our money until we see the change. Meanwhile, let's also be sure to ask the big, hard questions of the smaller brands that we love. Because as I said in our conversation, they can more easily pivot toward better things. And I can assure you, the big players are constantly watching the smaller brands to see what they're doing. And they definitely ask themselves, should we do this too? I know it's hard, and it, or at least at first it's hard, and it feels uncomfortable. It makes you feel like a troll to be the person in the comments saying, hey, how much do you pay your workers? Or 
you know, what's the, what's the deal with this fabric? You know, that kind of stuff. I know it feels so uncomfortable. It's, I'm totally a non-confrontational person, so it feels uncomfortable for me too. But it's one of those things that you sort of get better at with practice. So what if you challenged yourself to ask one brand per week what they're doing to mitigate their waste or how much they pay their garment workers, where they get their fabric? I mean, whatever is important to you to ask that brand that they aren't speaking clearly about, because that's something we've been talking about a lot on Instagram is sometimes the information that they're not sharing is more telling than what they are saying. So ask the questions, right? If you only had to do this once per week, that's only four times a month that you have to ask a difficult question. And what if we were all doing that? That's a lot of questions being asked every week and every month, right? Maybe you'll get so good at it, maybe we all will, that we can start doing two a week. And I would also say the same goes for influencers because as Jess pointed out, they aren't experts in sustainability. You know what I mean? Like they didn't go to school for sustainability. There's not a lot of clear education around it. And something that I'm always pointing out is that with all of the kind of confusing, amorphous, greenwashing type language that we are seeing and being exposed to every day, it kind of makes what is and is not sustainable a lot more confusing to understand. So unless an influencer has actually done a lot of reading about it or taken a class or you know listened to Clothes Horse, they don't know about greenwashing. They don't know how to differentiate it. It's something we're all learning together, right? I bet all of them would love to learn more because we can't assume that they don't care about the planet. I'm sure they do. We all live here. We all care about the people on it. We just don't know what we don't know, right? I think that they would actually love if you pointed the, these things out to them, but in a positive, encouraging way. Or send them over to Close Horse and I will talk to them. I think the more people we can get involved in asking the questions and fighting for what's right and changing the way we do things now, we can make major changes this year that will ripple across the industry and across the world. And that is not an overstatement. And no, I am not high on decongestant. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, you know what I'm going to say. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. I still have a few anti-brunch pins left, so if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an anti-brunch society pin and membership card. They were really slowed down by the USPS, and I'm starting to see people posting them and wearing them, and it's so exciting to spread the word of anti-brunch. <laughs> Brunch is so 2020, or maybe it's more like 2019, but it's in our rear view, right? Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares, hearing your encouragement and suggestions, answering questions. I've had so many good conversations this week alone via Instagram when I can't speak out loud, but I can certainly type up a storm. So thank you to everyone who's reached out. You're all the best. And hearing from you, it just makes me so happy. If you ever want me to share a source for the statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, get in touch. I have... As you know, by now, the world's biggest bookmark folder. In fact, it's almost annoying now to scroll through it, and I need to think about organizing it in a new way. I'm not a journalist, but I'm really committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information. 
Don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way via email, closedhorsepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Instagram at closedhorsepodcast. I am fully booked up and recorded in terms of interviews for January and possibly early February, but I am looking for new guests to interview in February and March. Um, I still really want to talk to someone about shoes. I am like obsessed with the idea. If you know anyone out there looking for someone who works with influencers, but in terms of like negotiating their contracts and their deals, someone who could speak to me about the sort of more boring side of the industry, which is what I'm fascinated with, like agreements and metrics and all of that stuff. So if you know that person who works with influencers in that way, please reach out to me. I have so many questions. Um, And I'm also looking for episode suggestions from all of you. So if you have an idea, hit me up. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, please join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. We're having a really good time over there. I'll share a link to it in the show notes. And if you like hearing the sound of my voice, which who wouldn't, right? Check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about the trends that shape our lives. And this week is part one of a deep dive into Pantone, which is the color systemizing company that kind of, well, it shapes our lives. A lot of stuff in your house in one way or another was influenced by Pantone. You'll get to hear me sounding really stuffy while I talk about the history of the brand. I love all the new stuff that I learned while working on the department. Thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.